Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, September 19th. Is Canada's housing crisis a result of poor federal fiscal policy? And what impact will Calgary's newly passed housing strategy have on the housing crisis? We discuss with Sasha Senkova, author and professor at the U of C School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Housing and rental units are in hot supply right now. So if you're looking at building a secondary suite on your property, do you know all the rules and requirements to do so legally? We get the answers from Josh. Howes, manager of the Secondary Suites program with the City of Calgary. And finally, if you think layoffs are on the horizon, make sure you know your rights as an employee before it's too late. We get some legal advice for those who find themselves right-sized from Steve Dimmick, employment lawyer for Calgary-based Dimmick Law. Joining us to discuss Calgary's housing crisis and the impact of the city's home is here housing strategy is Sasha Senkova, author and professor at the University of Calgary's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Good morning to you, Sasha. Good morning. So let's uh, let's uh, get right to it. To what extent do you agree with Councillor Sharp and believe the federal government's fiscal policies did, in fact, contribute to the affordability and, and housing crisis? Well, we we know that the housing crisis was uh, in the making for a very long time due to lack of uh, consistent um, intervention in the marketplace uh, from federal but also provincial governments. And the issue here is that uh, it's a real housing crisis that is affecting real communities and real people very dramatically, in fact. Um, housing costs on average have increased by 40% just in the last year alone. And a lot of that can be attributed to uh, high interest rates. Uh, mortgage rates have uh, increased about 10 times just in 18 months. Uh, but indeed, it's also the mismatch between supply and demand, which is the classical story and the big challenge of any housing market. While supply is very incremental in its adjustment and the most conservative element of any city, the demand is changing very, very quickly. And this is what happened in the last year or so. Um, it, it's it's really going to take a long and very consistent and coherent intervention from all levels of government to just provide a pathway to a solution. Um, it doesn't mean that the solutions are going to be clear and map out and adequate completely within the seven years of the the uh, housing strategy period implementation but they are a good mix of different um, solutions that will have a lasting legacy professor yesterday on the show one of our guests called calgary's housing strategy the most aggressive affordable housing strategy in our city's history maybe even in the country does that statement ring true for you do you think no, and I, I've worked in hundreds of cities, indeed, around the world, but also uh, in the large cities across Canada. It, it's it's uh, certainly a milestone in the uh, history of uh, the housing policy in Calgary, but it's it's not the most aggressive uh, housing strategy uh, in in Canadian cities. In fact, a lot of cities across Canada have moved away from minimum parking requirements and have. Uh, 
um, introduce blanket zoning for um, basement suites as, as well as um, really uh, the change of uh, single family homes into what we call the missing middle um, a while ago. So we're, we're not the first ones. Uh, but it's, it's really important to continue to actually work with different levels of government and to be also opportunistic and capitalize on the synergy of different programs that are being launched because they are really short-term and short-lived. So as a city, we have a responsibility to our communities, to the real people that are um, weathering the storm of of this uh, housing crisis. Speaking with uh, Sasha Senkova, author and professor at the University of Calgary School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. And Professor, you mentioned that, you know, you've done work in in hundreds of cities. Uh, When it comes to our nation here, what does said Calgary strategy apart from other cities in Canada? Um, Perhaps uh, what what is really important is is the fact that we have a very, very significant resource of urbanized land in our inner city communities that is uh, already serviced, that has the provision of uh, technical infrastructure, but also social infrastructure. And it's important to be able to capitalize on this and intensify the, the value of this land, provide a diversity of housing opportunities that will match the needs of, of different people in our city. It's increasing in terms of cultural and social and economic diversity. And in in many cases, these opportunities do not necessarily exist. They've been exhausted. A lot of cities in Europe, the great cities of the world, actually do not have single-family homes. And in Calgary, we have an abundant supply of that that provides an opportunity of the city to grow up. Um, But also an opportunity for the city to do better planning, better urban design, and uh, address the infrastructure deficit in in these communities. It will take at least 10 to 15 years before the impact of that intensification is felt in select neighborhoods. The market is not going to go into all neighborhoods at the same time. It actually usually chooses the low-hanging fruit. Uh, And so the city really needs to be um, catching up uh, in terms of um, providing adequate public space, public amenities and social infrastructure to these communities, as well as addressing design issues that might occur in the process of adjustment. And do you think that that means, you know, building up instead of out? I mean, we are a city that just continues to sprawl and that is very costly and expensive. Do we need to get some more high density housing in the city? I mean, that's going to make people, you know, inner city, not very happy, I would imagine. But is that sort of one of the answers we need to look to to make affording more uh, uh, housing more affordable and accessible for people? It is. A really an important component of uh, addressing the supply challenge and also looking at opportunities to reshape and adapt existing housing. It, it's actually something that is uh, happening in existing communities that were zoned up. It doesn't necessarily mean building new right away, but it means subdividing existing properties to match the need of smaller households that are growing exponentially in our cities at both ends of the demand spectrum, at the uh, 
seniors uh, are really one of the growing categories, uh, smaller households as well as the starters of, of their housing market career, the young professionals, the young people that are setting up their first home and want to live independently. So that is something that we need to look at because this is the real um, opportunity to address very quickly the supply challenge and, and then the growing up and the densification comes naturally because more people are actually attracted to these places. And then there is building higher and taller and introducing high density around transit stations, which is very much needed and really capitalizes on the investment that the city has made that all of us, the taxpayers, have made into uh, rapid transit and that infrastructure um, is is very important for, for a growing city. Um, I think it's a balancing act. There would be communities that will um, actually grow on the edge and we could learn from the success stories and those neighborhoods that are very vibrant. Um, suburban communities are part of a growing city, but really we need to balance uh, the growth. It, it, it means that perhaps less of that growth will be steered into suburban areas and new communities and more of that growth will be absorbed in, in what we have uh, as a city. Mm. Um, because we are really taking a lot of land. Yeah. It's, it's just mm -hmm. uh, several, uh, several uh, central Manhattans will, will fit into yeah. the urban footprint of Calgary. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll have to leave it there for time, but uh, thank you for your insight. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That is uh, Sasha Senkova, author and professor at the University of Calgary School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Eight oh six now, and we know certainly that affordable housing rental units in very high demand right now in the city of Calgary. And as part of the city of Calgary's housing strategy, there was much discussion about turning unused space in your house, perhaps into a secondary suite. So, what are the rules about it now? Joining us to talk about it is Josh Howes, manager of the Secondary Suites program with the city of Calgary. Thanks for coming in, Josh. Appreciate it very much. Hang on. We make sure you got your mic on there. We have Josh. Okay, we got you now. Perfect. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about, first of all, how do we define what a secondary suite is? Yeah, for sure. So a secondary suite is a, a self-contained dwelling unit that exists within the primary dwelling. Um, it requires to have some sort of a bedroom facility, a kitchen facility, and a bathroom facility. Um, and it's um, existing within the main dwellings, which is different than, say, a backyard suite, which can be outside of the main dwelling. Okay. Now, we know that secondary suites have been a thing in the city of Calgary for, for, for quite some time, but have, have there been any changes to the rules surrounding secondary suites with Calgary's new housing strategy? Um, yeah, the, the rules around secondary suites did not change specifically with the housing strategy. Well, we did talk about the possibility of incentivizing them um, in some different ways, but we've actually been working through the last seven or eight years through a registry program that was the major change for secondary suites. Um, and then about three or four years ago, we did add secondary suites to the majority of the residential properties as a listed use, which means that more and more homes could in install secondary suites 
um, in them um, legally with the land use zoning and, and the requirements that they need from a construction perspective. So is this something we go to the city to apply for before we begin, or do we start to build and get this secondary suite up and running and then apply for the proper permits for it? It definitely helps to pay attention to what you're going to need to do ahead of time, and the city certainly has a lot of information uh, on our website at calgary.ca backslash secondary suites. Um, we offer webinars that help inform people as to the things that they're going to need to do. Um, we have uh, actually one coming up tomorrow for secondary suites, but we also record them and put them on the web. Um, one of the things that's going to happen by finding out what you need ahead of time is you're going to avoid any making any mistakes in construction. When you get your building permit up front, you can have that early inspection of the rough things, the things behind the drywall to make sure that that's all done properly. And then you get a final inspection for that building permit at the end, and that way you've avoided making any mistakes in your construction along the way. Spending some time with Josh Howes, manager of the Secondary Suites program here in the city of Calgary. And Josh, do we know how popular uh, secondary mm -hmm. suites are in the city or how extensive you know, uh, they are across the city of Calgary? Are they being utilized? Yeah, it's, uh, they're massively popular. Um, one of the things that we're aware of is that for the most part, they do hit the, the bottom end of the market housing spectrum, um, one of the cheapest forms of, of rent. And so obviously as rent's going up in all sorts of other places, they become extremely popular mm -hmm. to renters. Um, but we've also seen that impacts on, on the registration and legalization. When we started the, the registry back in 2018, um, we had less than 1,000 suites on it. We're now approaching, and if you look this morning, probably somewhere in around 11,000 suites wow. on the registry. And so it's been a massive uptake in legalization and registration of them, which is great because that means that the safety of these units has been improved. And if, if you're renting, you're, you're going to want to look for that registration. But if you do see it, then you know that there's a, a minimum level of life safety that exists within that within that unit. Is there any area, or I, I don't know how to word it to get the best answer, are all areas in the city of Calgary able to have secondary suites or is there or is it only in some communities at this point how does that look yeah so the changes that happened about three to four years ago included secondary suites as a listed use in all residential districts across the city of calgary um they there is two primary different kind of groups still though one is if they're listed as permitted and one is if they're listed as discretionary and that's a little bit of land use bylaw jargon but really what that comes down to is that in some circumstances you're able to move straight to a building permit as long as you meet the rules. In the other circumstance, you still require a development permit approval first. Okay. Josh, what if I've been you know, doing something nefarious, something <laughs> illegal, and I have an illegal suede in my property, uh, and I decide I want to you know, be above board? That process, and do I get slapped on the wrist if I come forward and say I'm good to go, and, and in fact I've already got somebody in? Yeah, the, the city's intention is clearly to get to compliance. We want safe suites out there, and it doesn't matter if the, if the suite exists currently or not. We have processes to help you get it to the point where um, you're able to register that suite, um, where you're able to do the work required to, to bring it up to the standards that we look at from a safety perspective. And so we're able to work with people that are thinking about it, but also in a situation, and we see a lot of people that have bought a home that has, um, you know, something that's been developed down there and they have no clue whether or not it's permitted mm -hmm. properly or not. Uh, we get a lot of inquiries like that and we're able to start with people at the beginning and work them through the process. So what makes a, a suite safe or legal? Do you have to have a, a, a separate entrance? You know, what does it look like? 
Mm-hmm. There, there is a couple of different standards that we look at, but the four primary things that we often see in existing suites um, and that need to be converted are we're looking for interconnected fire and smoke and, and carbon monoxide alarms um, between the upper and the lower units. You're looking for those units to be separated by a smoke seal, which basically really for everybody else means drywall between the two units. Um, We're looking for egress windows. That's something I think that's coming around in in older homes. Or a way to get out. Exactly, yeah. The proper size in the bedroom specifically. And then we're looking for an unprotected exit. Um, So those are a little bit harder to explain exactly what that means, but essentially on your path out, you can't go past, say, a window from the upper floor too closely or whatnot. So those are the primary four things that we're looking for in existing. If you're looking into a new suite that hasn't, that's not there yet, um, that's where people, when they talk about the, you know, separate heating or separate airflow and whatnot, that is an added requirement for a non-existing suite. I'm not sure if this falls under the same umbrella of secondary suites because generally we're talking about within the home. But what about those carriage house style, uh, the rooms above a garage, a detached garage? They also call them mother-in-law uh, suites sometimes. Mm-hmm. We can delve into why they call them that. <laughs> uh, but are, are those now legal? I know that there was a time where. I was building a garage and the contractor, this is 20 years ago, said you're not allowed to do that anymore in the city. Are we opening that up? Yeah, that's that was certainly on discussion over the over the last couple of days at council. Um, in terms of as the zoning potentially changes in the city, that could open up uh, increased amounts of backyard suites. But backyard suites are also mostly listed across the residential zoning um, as as discretionary. Um, there are some that don't allow for it still. Certainly, your process still requires a development permit um, and that larger process for those ones. Um, but if and when we see the effects of the blanket rezoning, you'll see that listed in every residential property. Can I ask you, somebody's texting in to say it's expensive for homeowners to put in a secondary suite because of regulation. So what would some of the fees be? You have to get a, a fee or do you have to pay a fee, I would imagine, for a permit. What, what would some of the other kind of costs be to get to the point where you can have somebody coming in? Yeah, for sure. There's a couple of costs. And actually, the city for the last number of years has been covering some of those costs for, for the public. And, and that's... Um, something that comes to an end at the end of this year unless it's extended again. And so that fee is the registration fee for the suite um, itself, which is about $230. The city's covering that. Uh, the development permit fee was two, uh, 471 The city's been covering that. Um, and so a couple of those pieces haven't been required where there are still some fees that exist are on your, your construction permits. So the building permit itself, which is about a $200 fee, um, and any trades that you might need. So sometimes mm-hmm. you need an electrical permit or a plumbing permit. Those are around the same cost to the city. Um, but in terms of permits, um, the majority of them we've actually been covering for the last number of years. Okay, oh. that seem, makes, seems to make it yeah. a, a, quite affordable to do it. Absolutely. Lots of great information there, Josh. I've, I've learned a lot this morning. And in the meantime, if you want to hop online to learn more, it's calgary.ca slash secondary suites. Thanks for your time, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Josh House, Manager, Secondary Suites Program with the City of Calgary. Seven eighteen now, and we know it's a reality these days. Employees being laid off. It's a sign of the times, unfortunately, sometimes. Uh, but do we have rights as an employee who is being let go? And, and how do we know what those rights are and how we can deal with the situation? Joining us to discuss this morning is Steve Dimmick, who is a lawyer and founder of Dimmick Law. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me this morning. I mean, as I said, it's a reality, right? I mean, a lot of companies facing difficult times in these economic challenges that we're all experiencing. So what happens if someone's laid off? What's the first step that an employee needs to take? 
I mean, sometimes it can be very difficult, very unexpected uh, when this does happen. I mean, especially if an employee has been a long tenured employee of the company. So it's important to understand what's being presented by the employer. I mean, typically uh, there there is uh, there are documentation uh, that are presented that the employee is given um, a short period of time to respond to, and the employee needs to understand that they do have time to push back, to take the, to this documentation to an independent uh, lawyer uh, to review it carefully, so to fully understand what is being presented by the employer and if that is appropriate for the employee based on their years of tenure and other factors. Steve, obviously, yeah, you mentioned it's not a one-size-fits-all, one answer once you, you have been surplus, so to speak. Uh, but as far as what the government has down on paper, for example, do we have basic rights like weeks per year that I have to be paid out for severance, the amount of uh, time notice I have to be given? Is there a baseline? Uh, yes, exactly, Andrew. So um, in Alberta, under the Employment Standards Code, uh, there are those baselines uh, depending on how many uh, years the uh, employee has put in, and it's it's typically in two-year tranches, um, and then uh, up to basically up to ten years. After ten years, it's pretty it's pretty standard. But what what we need to understand is that these are minimums that the employers are held by. These are minimum. Uh, payout periods uh, that uh, are that they have to meet, but under common law, and actually, um, employees are could be and would be entitled to uh, a lot more. So, I mean, Steve, is it always uh, here, lawyer? So, I'm going to guess what I know your answer is. But you know, that being said, it, are there times where it's a really important and a good idea to consult with a lawyer if you've been laid off, or are there other times where you just you can acknowledge, okay, well, this is where we're going, and and maybe I ask for a little bit more, but you know, there's not really much I can do about it. Um, it, it, it's all, it, it depends on individuals. I mean, people do understand generally people. People are very knowledgeable, so they do understand uh, what is presented to them. But again, if they're, if it just doesn't feel right, or if they do see that, hey, I've, I've been here for a long time, I just want a second opinion. Um, that that's that's what we're there for, and um, um, it's again, it's important to take time to process the situation and uh, make sure that uh, they're acknowledging uh, what is being offered and proceed accordingly. How does it work with a you know an employment lawyer situation, Steve? I know we know with family family lawyers, you have to a lot of the times put down kind of a deposit, and you're paying all the way through. Maybe business as well, uh, but injury lawyers, for example, you don't get paid in, unless the lawyer comes out for you uh, ahead. What about an employment lawyer? How does that work? Am I going to be charged? Um, it really depends um, uh, what the um, service requirement is. So, um, if, if it is just to review uh, the uh, severance package that is being offered, typically uh, this would be a fixed uh, fee for that review. And I mean, uh, these packages are usually not fairly extensive. So, within a couple of hours for that fixed fee, uh, the employee would get the uh, pretty detailed feedback, um, at least with our firm. Um, 
and then it really depends what they want to do if they feel and with our opinion that they just haven't received enough um, then there is potential to approach the employer um, at, outside of court through through letters and negotiation in order to ensure uh, that the employee um, is being compensated enough and um, that does have a again a, a fixed fee component and then um, a little bit greater fixed fee component because there's more involved in negotiating with those employers. I can speak from experience, Steve. It is well worth your while to just check with a lawyer to see that you're getting the best deal possible. Thank you so much for your time this morning and, and sharing the information. What's the website for uh, Dimmick Law? Um, ca. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Appreciate it, Steve. Thanks so much. Steve Dimmick, lawyer, founder of Dimmick Law, D-I-M-I-C-Law.com.